service he coordinates the brass we're very grateful bill thank you well let's pray together lord we are so grateful that we can look at your word we thank you that you've given us your holy spirit we ask you now to work in our hearts uh, uh, help us to see jesus more clearly Lord, you know the uh, struggles that we bring with us as we come week by week, the unresolved conflicts that are before us, the confusion that we feel, and we thank you that you're the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Comfort us, we pray. Teach us. Help us to be more like Jesus, we pray. We ask these things in his name, amen. Glossophobia. Fear of public speaking. Makes me tremble just to say the word. <laughs> and uh, that's a problem that some 77% of the population faces. It impacts how people do their job interviews, how they do presentations at work. But all is not lost. There's help for people that are afraid of public speaking. You can go to Toastmasters, and they will help you. Or you can take an online course. <clears throat> and the best practice for fear of public speaking is practice. Practice, practice. As followers of Jesus, we are told that we're to be his witnesses, and we're always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us. In other words, use your voice to influence other people for Christ. Today's theme is, as Bill's already noted, the preaching of Pentecost. We looked at the power of Pentecost last week. This time we're looking at the preaching of Pentecost. And uh, if you have a Bible and can turn to Acts chapter 2, we're going to focus in on the verses we just heard read, uh, verses 14 through 36. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. God has given the Holy Spirit to his church, and some are amazed and others scoff. And now in Peter's sermon, uh, he really has three parts to it. First, there's a two-verse introduction, verses 14 and 15. And then there's a supporting text out of which he preaches and then finally we get to the body of the sermon so that's it introduction supporting text and the actual sermon Jesus had not told his people to try to speak in tongues he hadn't told them to do that he just said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you Speaking in tongues was not dependent on their initiative. It was rather God's gift to his church. And it came as the Spirit gave the early church utterance, we're told, there in chapter 2, verse 4. And so the, early, uh, so the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles, crowds gather in Jerusalem for the Passover, and these crowds hear the early disciples speaking in the languages of the various people that are there, wonderful deeds that God has done. 
And so we read in verses 12 and 13, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they're filled with new wine. Well, never had there been an audience assembled like this one. People from many different Asians, ethnic nations, ethnicities, and languages across the Middle East. And there in front of them is a poor fisherman. People can hear it down the street, and their response to what they hear is, oh, these are Galileans that are saying these things. But Jesus has kept his word. He had sent the Holy Spirit, and Peter finds courage out of that which the Spirit provides to set the record straight. And so in verses 14 and 15 now, he's going to tell the crowds what is actually happening. He says, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, drunkenness, not a chance. It's nine in the morning, the hour for prayer. And you know, on feast days, Jews really don't get going until around 10 o'clock anyway. One commentator has suggested that uh, Peter may be being a little humorous, tongue-in-cheek when he speaks to the crowd. It would be kind of like a pastor saying to a group of people outside his church, um, our deacons aren't drunk yet. It's way too early for that. And we know that there's not a hint of any drunkenness in that early record about the, those first disciples. So, Peter begins with a clear-cut statement uh, that is an argument against the charge of drunkenness. That's the introduction. <clears throat> Preaching of Pentecost. The crowds have raised another issue, though, besides drunkenness, and it is this one. What does this speaking in tongues thing mean? How do we make sense out of it? And so that brings us to verses 16 to 21, which form the basis for what Peter has to say. Now, he draws words from the Old Testament that had been uttered some 800 years before this Pentecost Sunday. And the first thing that Peter talks about is God's promise. Uh, look at verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, declares God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. It comes straight from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And you say to yourself, you know, I've always been wondering about the book of Joel. It'd be nice if I could have some way of learning a little bit more about it. You are at the right place because next Sunday, Ajalon is going to preach four sermons, working our way through the book of Joel. So, 
Make sure you're here. Well, so, go on. Uh, those words not only talk about God's promise, they also spell out his purpose. Look at verse 21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. From the Garden of Eden to Pentecost to the present, God has been about the business of seeking and saving lost people, calling them to himself. And that's what Peter says to this crowd gathered in Jerusalem. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he also addresses not just God's promise, not just his plan, but his power. Look at verses 19 and following. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, which is to say, history is not going to keep on moving interminably. There is an end point to God's control of history. The great and magnificent day. Now, what we've done so far is just looked at the two-verse introduction, verses 14 and 15, and then Peter's Old Testament text from the book of Joel. And before we move on, though, I'd like you to consider with me the significance of these words. What do they tell us about God? What would you say, having listened to these words, what do they say about the God that we worship? Well, he makes promises to his people. He keeps promises that he makes to his people. Or we could say it like this. God is dependable. You can bank on him. You can really trust in him. And so what does that mean then as far as your life right now is concerned? Not 800 years before Christ, but now 2,000 years after his death and resurrection and ascension. Well, consider again verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say everybody who calls may hope he'll be saved, will probably be saved, it's very likely. No, it says everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can take it to the bank. So let me ask, have you called on the name of the Lord to be saved? It's one of the most important questions you could ever answer. Have you called on it? Remember the account of Peter, uh, Matthew chapter 14. He's out with the other disciples in a boat. Jesus has sent them on to their next de destination. And suddenly, out of nowhere, in the early morning, like between 3 and 6 in the morning, Jesus comes to them on the water there's a furious storm going on, and the disciples are petrified. Now, these sailors are petrified. That's interesting in itself. And they see Jesus, and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts toward Jesus, 
And then apparently the howling winds and the waves sloshing around him take his eye off Christ, and he is really scared, and he starts to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me! And Jesus reaches out his hand and takes him, and they both get into the boat. Now, take that physical picture of Peter calling out to the Lord in his dire straits and change it into a spiritual scene where you say to yourself, I cannot make it. This is more than I can do. Lord, I've made such a mess of my life. Will you please help me? And the promise of God, whatever your background is, if you will come to him, he will save you. Not just from a storm-tossed sea, but he'll save your soul for eternity. What a wonderful promise. All your guilt and shame, gone. Free to trust in the Lord. The Lord is a promise-keeping God who sent Jesus to save any who call on him. And so ought you not to pay attention to him today? His word is coming to you. Respond. Say, Lord, I entrust myself to your care. Now let's try to take this narrative and put it in a little larger frame. In terms of the Lord's earthly ministry, we might call what is happening here at Pentecost the end of the beginning. Jesus has been around for 30 plus years. He's been crucified. He goes back to heaven. He's now seated at the Father's right hand. And that part has ended. It's the end of the beginning. Well, what's left for the rest of us who are here on earth? the early church, and you and me. Well, we get to carry on what Jesus began to do. And we live in a time where this, there is this unfolding of the work of the church, and we can say now we are living at the beginning of the end. What's the next big thing on God's calendar? The coming of this wonderful day of the Lord to which Joel makes reference. So, verses 14 and 15, the introduction, and then the Old Testament foundation from Joel in verses 16 to 21. What's next? Well, Peter's actual sermon. This is the preaching of Pentecost, and, and now he's kind of geared up. What's he going to say? Well, look at verses 22 to 24. God has a plan. Speaking to his Jewish audience, Peter includes them for their part in Christ's crucifixion. He says, men of Israel hear these words, and he implores them, listen carefully now to what I'm going to say. God was at work through Jesus of Nazareth while he was living among you. And then verse 23. <clears throat> this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Ironically, this Jesus they put to death is the one through whom the Lord offers salvation. And you read those words, or you listen to me read those words, and you say, hold the phone. I don't quite get it. I can't believe what I just heard. What's this? Jesus was delivered over by God's definite plan, and he was killed by the hands of wicked men. It seems like double talk. How can it be? Those are great questions. So let's just pause here. <clears throat> Frequently in the New Testament, God links together ideas about predestination and man's free will. And it's right there in verse 23. You see it. By God's definite plan, wicked men put Jesus to death. And often people ask, well, which is it? Does God choose us for salvation, or do we choose to believe the gospel? Which of them? It just seems paradoxical, doesn't it? Many sincere Christians have struggled with this over the course of their lives. Uh, I've talked to you about Mr. Jansen before. Well, so let me tell you a little bit more about him. Mr. Jansen was one of my dad's best friends in the church in which I was raised in western Massachusetts. Loved the Lord's giving, talented, sacrificial, and he struggled with just this issue. And so for at least a year, in my memory at least, uh, for, for at least a year, uh, he stopped coming to church, grew a big handlebar mustache, and just pondered what the Bible had to say on the topic. Well, the Lord brought him back. It's a hard problem, you know? And without resolution, it can be most distressing. So which is it? Does God choose us for salvation, or do we choose to believe? And the Bible's answer to that question, those two questions, is yes. Yes, God chooses us for salvation. And yes, we choose to believe. Now, human reason tries to search out some philosophical or logical way of putting this together to resolve the tension. And the Bible's answer is just clear. God does it. He chooses. And yes, we believe both. Here's a way that helps me. Um, I will tell you, uh, I am not the most logical person in the world. Ask Debbie. She'll con confirm this. But if I'm given a choice, do I believe my logic or do I believe the Bible, I'm going to believe the Bible. I'm going to take God at his word, even though I can't understand how these things are seemingly contradictory. And somehow in God's big eternal plan, those parallel roads come together. Now you say to me, well, you're saying it so doesn't really convince me, so let me suggest something else. How about a John Piper resource? 
uh, go to Desiring God Ministries, look up a little article that he's written, and this is the title of it. Is God sovereign over my free will? Now, how do you like that? Is God sovereign over my free will? It's really a very good article, and it's not very long. Well, let's go back to verse 24. So what happens? God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. And so by, for the first time in Christian preaching, Peter mentions the resurrection. God raises Jesus from the dead. God does not abandon Jesus. And so look at verses 25 and following. Peter had returned to the prophets to explain Pentecost. Now he turns his attention to the Psalms to support the idea that the grave could not keep Jesus. First, he makes reference to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Unlike David's dead and buried body, Jesus' body was not permitted to decompose, but was exalted. And Peter's point, well, look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of him we are all witnesses. Centuries before the life and death and resurrection, David had prophesied about the coming of Christ. And then, finally, verses 33 to 36, God made Jesus Lord and Messiah. Peter continues by con connecting the dots. Uh, the resurrected Lord with David's prophecy, with the Spirit's coming at Pentecost. So look at verses 33 and following. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Where did David ever say anything like that? Anybody know? Psalm 110, exactly. Psalm 110, verse 1. It's because of our Lord's resurrection that he can send the Spirit at Pentecost. Now, David didn't prophesy about his own ascension, but rather about the exaltation of Jesus. And as our exalted Lord, his enemies will be brought under him. Now, let's just review. What do we see here so far? In Peter's sermon, he says, first of all, this, this sermon is all about a person. You know who it is? It's about Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, verse 32. It's also about a position, verse 33. Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand. There's proof for it, verses 34 and 35. David, many years ago, said that this would happen. And this is all about God's power. Verse 36, God made him to be both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, let's think about that. God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. The word Lord has to do with being master. 
the word Christ has to do with being Messiah. Uh, Jesus is my master. He sets the marching orders. He's my king. He's the one who sacrificed for me. Luke is writing to Theophilus. Remember him? He's a Gentile guy. And uh, Luke wants to set the record straight. So of what value would this sermon that Peter preaches be to Theophilus? Let me suggest a few things. Theophilus gets to see how the church advances. If you wanted to institute a worldwide movement, how would you do it? Would you ever think that preaching would be a way? Amazing. God is going to advance his church through the power of his Holy Spirit in the lives of humble servants of his choosing that proclaim his truths. That's how the church advances. And Theophilus, he's being challenged to get on board here and be a faithful witness as all in the early church were called to do. And that's also a reminder for us, isn't it? The Lord is calling you to be a faithful witness. Right in your own backyard. Right in your sphere of influence. And it's also an encouragement to pray. Remember what Jesus said, John, uh, Luke chapter 10? He said, the, the harvest is plentiful. It's, it's ready the workers are few. So pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into his harvest field. Are you praying regularly? Pray day by day, would you? Lord, send out more workers. And you could also add, and if you want to send me, that's okay too. Short sermon comes to a rather abrupt and sobering end. God made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. You know, he began, there's a great difference between eating bitterness. That's a Chinese term for suffering hardship. And eating loss. That's an idiom for suffering the infringement of one's rights. It's a big difference between the two. Hardship and suffering the infringement of your rights. Uh, a group of Christian workers were together and they were uh, discussing their experience serving in the land of China. And then he went on. He said, Eating bitterness is easy enough. To walk to a place you're going to work for several weeks, you get there and you talk to people and you meet people. There's a certain thrill to it. Okay, your bed may be on a couple of planks held up by sawhorses, but there's a certain beauty to it, going back to a simple life. Uh, a little healthy bitterness, if you will, is good for everybody. But eating loss, 
suffering the infringements of one's rights that is another thing i found i couldn't stand up for my rights and i couldn't even have any rights i found that i had to give them up every one of them and that was the hardest thing of all and then they all continued isn't it these kinds of hard things these unexpected things that really make Christians falter. You don't have any rights. Those are the far less romantic, much more real difficulties. And it hits you right down there where you live. The preaching of Pentecost comes to us through an untrained public speaker. He's a fisherman by trade, but he gives himself sacrificially for the sake of others that need the good word of the gospel. He says, God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And as we sang at the beginning, well, this God made this one Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom Jesus came out of love for you. And as we sang at the beginning of our service, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord, bless your word to us, we pray. Help us to be faithful witnesses for you, not all bound up in our rights, but willing to give them up for the sake of the one who died for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing one more song. It's numbered 92. Um, let's stand together as we sing.